Well, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me back to the book of Job, where we read the first two chapters a little earlier. The title for this message is, He is God, as we begin this new series, Behold Your God. As you know, it's our normal practice to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. You could call that book exposition. But in this series, we're going to do more of a topical exposition, which is looking at a variety of passages, particularly in the Old Testament, over the course of the series, where we're going to study instances in Scripture where God reveals Himself in a powerful way. Singing, Behold Your God, was a fitting start to this study. But before we start building out the series, I want to begin by really framing or, or laying the foundation of the series, explaining why this is an important study. And to that end, Job will serve as an illustration for us rather than a direct study. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Did Pastor Gabe forget that today's Mother's Day? <laughs> No, as I look through the corridors of time, otherwise known as a calendar, and saw that today would be Mother's Day, it didn't take long to conclude that what mothers need most is a true knowledge of God. And there's no greater gift a mother can receive from her children or family than those who live in light of a true knowledge of God. And there's no greater gift a mother can give to her family than to live in light of a true knowledge of God. And so if this message helps us to grow in our knowledge of God, this will be more than appropriate for Mother's Day. Now, if you're there in Job, look again at chapter 1. I just want to read verses 20 to 22 as we get started. After receiving the sudden news of the loss, ruin, and death of almost everything in his life, Job responded this way. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Those are the opening words of A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's not the first thing that comes into your mind that's the most important thing, because the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is really the result of whatever is going on in your life at that moment, whether it's what you read in the Bible that day, or perhaps the Growing Disciples class you're taking, or a sermon you recently heard, or something else. The first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is perhaps what is most pressing on your soul in that moment, but it's not the most important thing about you in total. What is the most important thing about you 
is your conception of God. Again, Tozer says, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Your heart, which is the center of your thoughts, affections, and will, your heart revolves around your conception of God. What you think and believe about any issue is shaped by your conception of God. Your priorities and values and desires are shaped by your conception of God. Your commitments, your words, and your actions are shaped by your conception of God. All of that is to say that your heart revolves around your view of God. So as you respond to the situations of life, to the degree that you're being sincere in your response, you're broadcasting for all to see how you view God. And now we can see this principle clearly presented in Job's response, can we not? When Job responds to the devastation of life by worshiping God, he's broadcasting to those around him and to the spiritual realm, especially God and Satan, what he believes about God. Namely, that God is worthy to be worshipped no matter what happens in life. When his wife says to him in chapter 2, verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She is broadcasting what she believes about God. And Job again broadcasts his view of God when he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not expect adversity? Job's wife was happy to praise and worship God when everything was going well. But then when life was ruined, she was ready to curse God. If Job responded like his wife, he would have proved Satan right. But Job proved God right and Satan wrong. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And you demonstrate what you really believe about God by how you respond to the issues of life. This was true of David as well in Psalm 18, the psalm that David wrote uh, when Saul and all of his enemies were defeated, when Saul died. David begins that psalm by saying, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Now you might be tempted to think, well, of course David viewed God as his refuge and stronghold and deliverer and all of those things because that was after he was delivered. That was when the victory was won. It's easy to affirm those things about God when the outcome of trials is victory. But how did David respond in the middle of his trial? That's the question. When he was constantly running and hiding from Saul for years. 
Well, several psalms tell us. David wrote Psalm 59 at the very beginning of his ordeal when King Saul had dispatched men to watch over David's house to ambush him and kill him as soon as they could. In that psalm, David cried out to the Lord saying, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for me, for my life. And then he ends that psalm by saying, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. That's at the very beginning. And then while David was on the run, he took refuge with the Ziphites, And he wrote Psalm 54 when the Ziphites betrayed David and sold him out and went and told Saul that David was living among them. And he wrote that psalm saying, Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your power. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. David wrote Psalm 57 when he fled from Saul in the cave. And he said, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So when David was running for his life from King Saul, instead of railing against Saul and against the Lord, David looked to God as his refuge. And so his declaration at the end of that trial was only the culmination of everything that he believed to be true about God. David believed that God would protect him, and so he took refuge and comfort in the Lord and refused to retaliate against Saul. Now, sadly, years later, victory and prosperity made David less dependent on the Lord, making room for sin to creep into his heart. And so after He violated Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. The prophet Nathan said to David, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also have uh, gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why, the Lord says, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? It would be true to say that David violated Bathsheba because he had lust in his heart. And it would be true to say that David murdered Uriah because he had fear of getting caught. But what the Lord says here is that at the root of David's sin is that he had wrong thoughts about God. He acted as though God was withholding from him. And he despised the word of God that would have protected him from sin. So on the one hand, David's right thoughts about God is the explanation for his exemplary response to his unjust suffering. And his wrong thoughts about God are the explanation for his deplorable sins. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Consider the oldest example of this principle that we have in Scripture. Keep your finger here and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. 
just before Genesis chapter 3, we've been told that on the sixth day of creation, the Lord made Adam from the dust of the ground and placed him in the Garden of Eden. And he commanded Adam, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And within hours of giving that command, the Lord made Eve from Adam's side, and no doubt Adam conveyed that command to her perfectly. Look at chapter 3, verses 1-6. to Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, But from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And by the way, I think that she's accurately conveying God's command. She's affirming the fact that God did not say, don't eat it, but hey, have all the fun you want with it. He meant, stay away from it. That's what she's conveying. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and, it, and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And we don't know how much trans- time transpired between day six and this particular day. Was it days? Was it weeks? I don't think it was very long, but it was long enough that Adam and Eve were accustomed to communing with God and spending time with Him in the garden. Verse 8 says that they knew the sound of God as He was walking to them through the garden. We don't know in those intervening days as they communed with God how much God revealed Himself to them, what He told them about Himself, what they talked about. We don't know. But we can assume rightly that they had complete trust in God. Notice there in verse 5, But the way that Satan tempts Eve is to fundamentally change her thoughts about God. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is holding out on you, he's saying. God wants to keep you in the dark. God doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. God can't be trusted. And with that assassination of his character, Eve looks at the fruit and considers the command of God and concludes that God is not looking out for her best interest. And so she determines for herself what she thinks is best and eats the fruit. Steve Lawson wrote about this moment, no longer seeing God as loving, she wrongly assumed he was withholding his goodness. No longer seeing him as righteous, she actually believed he would not punish sin. Once these aberrations occurred in her thinking about God, the result was inevitable. She disobeyed him. Mark it, my friends, the way that the devil tempted Eve was by changing her thoughts about God. And so it is with all sin and temptation. 
Sin can only live in an environment laced with wrong thoughts about God. And this poison drunk by Adam and Eve has permeated humanity ever since. When Paul condemns humanity in Romans chapter 3, he identifies the common source as this. The common source of sin as this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And because there is no fear of God, they love wickedness. In that section of Romans 3, Paul also quotes from Psalm 14, which says this, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have, be- they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And so we can rightly say that atheism leads to all kinds of ungodliness. But you know what else leads to ungodliness? Practical atheism. Practical atheism is belief in a God that doesn't exist. Practical atheism is having a distorted view of God that effectively denies the existence of the one true and living God. Practical atheism is another word for idolatry. Listen to what Tozer says about idolatry. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any others more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true one, excuse me, for the true God, one made after its own likeness. He goes on to say, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. So the person who attends church and believes that a good God would never send someone to hell is an idolater. They're worshiping a God that doesn't exist and denying the existence of a God who does indeed send people to hell. If you you think you've done something so heinous that God would never forgive you, you're thinking about a God who doesn't exist. And you're denying the existence of the true and living God who does offer free and full forgiveness to any sin to those who would repent and turn to Him. The person who strives to earn forgiveness from God and earn His smile strives after a God that doesn't exist and denies the true God that He saves by grace alone and is pleased with His people on the basis, not of their works, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. We commit idolatry when we conceive of God as something other than He is. And the direction of our distorted view of God is always making Him out to be more like His creation. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and the glory cloud covered the top of the mountain, the people grew impatient and so they cried out to Aaron, make us a God who will go before us. So Aaron made that golden calf and said to the people, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a four-footed animal. Aaron had a lot of right thoughts about God who had rescued them from Egypt. But he had a lot of wrong thoughts about God that led him to commit idolatry. Now you and I might not conceive of God as a four-footed animal, but sometimes we can conceive of God as corruptible man, as one like us. Voltaire was no friend to biblical Christianity, but he was right when he said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Our tendency is to bring God down to our level as if he ought to share our values and our priorities and our perspective and our propensities. We want God's justice on our enemies to be swift and complete. And we want God's justice on us and our loved ones to be slow and merciful. And when God exercises his justice differently than we expect, we question his justice. When we see God's providence in someone's life result in chronic pain and suffering, we know that if we had the power, we would remove that pain from them. And so we wonder, is, is God as compassionate as we are? Or when a tragic death occurs, we might ask, why would God let that happen? Which is another way of saying, if I was God, I wouldn't let that happen. So what's wrong with God that he let that happen? That doesn't seem right or just or fair. In such moments, if someone asked us about our view of God, we would give an orthodox answer, but in our heart, we would be denying him by thinking wrongly about him. Idolatry is the besetting sin of all people, even among us who worship God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so there is nothing more important than to grow in our knowledge of God. Jesus prays in John 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In Ephesians 4, we're told that the work of ministry continues until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And then in Colossians 1, Paul prays again that you would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel 
to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We are saved by the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light, shout out, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it's when God shines the knowledge of Himself into our hearts that we're saved. We're sanctified by a growing knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our glorification will be defined by a full knowledge of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. Boasting is generally discouraged in Scripture, but there is one thing that we are encouraged to boast about. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. There is no greater problem in your life or in my life than wrong thoughts about God. There is no greater joy that comes to us than when we have right thoughts about God. And so our greatest need in life is to grow in our knowledge of God. That is our aim in this series. With that as an introduction, let's come back to Job chapter 1. I want to spend our remaining time today making what is perhaps the most obvious point about God, but which we often forget, and that is this. He is God. This is the lesson of the book of Job, and it is a lesson often repeated in Scripture to people like us who keep forgetting that God is God. Verses 1 to 7, as we read earlier, set the context of Job's life. He was an immensely blessed man. He was wealthy beyond his contemporaries. He was the most respected man in the region. And he loved and cared for the souls of his children. Most importantly, he feared God, which is to say that his heart was shaped by his experience of God. Job did not have a trouble-free life but his overall experience of life was defined by blessing and abundance and success. Now, unlike God, but just like us, Satan doesn't know what's in the heart of a person. So he looks at Job's success, and he sees Job worshiping God, and he cynically concludes that the only reason Job worships God is because of how God has blessed him. And so the Lord, who does know Job's heart, gives him permission to test his theory. So Satan then devises and executes a plan to destroy Job's life by taking away everything he owns and killing his ten children. And the report of all that's come, that's happened, comes to Job in a matter of seconds as one survivor after another tells and reports the devastation to Job. 
Most of us have been in that position where you receive shocking news, whether in person or over the phone or via email or a text. We've received news that shatters our perception, that changes our plans immediately, and that calls into question everything that we thought we knew. How we respond in such moments rises out of our view of God. Job responded to the news in two ways. Sorrow and worship. Because he feared God, he confessed in that devastating moment that God has every right to take away as he has to give. So we should bless or speak well of God no matter what happens. In making this confession, Scripture says Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. His confession was an act of worship in that he declared out loud that the Lord is God and worthy to be worshipped no matter what he adds or takes away from our lives. Job feared God, not because it led to rewards, but because the Lord is God, and that alone makes him worthy of worship. The most important thing about Job was not his family, was not his possessions, was not his success. The most important thing about Job is that he had right thoughts about God. And because he had right thoughts about God, he feared God. God and he turned away from evil. How is it then that after hearing directly from God as he does at the end of the book, that Job says, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes? How does Job go from worshiping to repentance? What did he retract and repent of? Surely it wasn't his initial response there in chapters 1 and 2. No, it was the things that he said between chapters 3 and 31. You see, at the end of chapter 2, we learn that Job had three friends who came to meet with Job and to grieve with Job. And those friends exuded profound wisdom as they sat with him for seven days in silence. But then they opened their mouths. And one by one, they began to speak to Job out of their own conception of God. You see, they held to an ancient form of prosperity theology, really called retribution theology, which says that when you do well, God will bless you. But if you don't do well, God will curse you. So they concluded that for Job to have experienced all that he did, he must have done something wrong. By the way, that theology was around in Jesus' day. The disciples held it. Remember, they came across a blind man in John 9, and the disciples asked him, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? A lot of people today believe that theology. I hear it often in my office. Why am I suffering the way I am? Is God punishing me? Well, neither Job nor his friends knew anything about the conversation between God and Satan in heaven. They 
They didn't know that it was precisely Job's righteousness that is the explanation for his suffering. And so in their ignorance of what went on in heaven and their wrong perception of God, they interrogated Job, trying to find some wrong in him that explained his ordeal. After all, if if they could get him to confess his sin, maybe God would relent and his suffering would end. Job himself responded to their accusations by defending himself and declaring his innocence. And this discussion goes on for three cycles as one friend after another spars with Job trying to find the source of Job's suffering. And in the course of that discussion, even though Job maintains his confession that God has the right to do whatever he wants, Job develops an attitude of complaint to the point where instead of cursing God, he curses himself and his own life. He declares that if this is what God intends for him, it would be better if he had not been born. In chapter 10, Job said, I loathe my life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days as of the days of a mortal or your years as man's years? Do you seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. He's complaining to God. Later in that chapter, he says, hardship after hardship is with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my few days alone? Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer. Well, as is true of all of us, in the midst of intense emotions, Job's thoughts went one direction and then another. And so there were times where he did express his trust in the Lord. He said in chapter 13, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. In chapter 19, he spoke those famous words of trust in a future resurrection. He said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take a stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. But then in chapter 23, he goes back to his complaining. And he says, even today my complaint is rebellion. My hand is, or his hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. And I just imagine his friends backing away, afraid that the lightning's about to fall. Job says in chapter 30, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you do not turn and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. This is Job speaking to the Lord. Job confessed that God had the right to do whatever he wanted. But he began to wonder 
if what God wanted was right. Job 31 is Job's closing arguments, justifying himself before God and his friends, declaring his innocence and his unjust suffering. Then chapters 32 to 37 is the monologue of Elihu, a young man who admonishes Job and his three friends in defense of God. But I want you to jump with me to chapter 38. Chapter 38. Because this is where God comes into the scene. In response to Job, excuse me, in response to Job's suffering, Job and his three friends have filled the air with their thoughts about God and why he causes suffering. Elihu defended God, but now God is about to speak. What is God going to say in his self-defense? What does God want Job and all of us to know about himself? In all of what Job has suffered as a righteous man, how will God justify his actions? Well, here it is. Chapter 38, verse 1, that the Lord, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the seas with doors? Then when bursting forth, it went out of the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? that it may take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for surely you were born then, and the number of your days is great. That, by the way, is sarcasm. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, and have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way of light that is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land without people on a desert without a man in it? To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of heavens or fix their rule above the earth? 
Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite to the young lions or, the, or when they crouch in their dens and lie in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry out to God and wander about without food? Do you know about the time that the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young, they get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong, they grow up in the open field, they leave and do not return to them. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. Will the, will the wild ox consent to serve you or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The ostrich's wings flap joyously with opinions and plumage of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned, because God has made her to forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe the neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snortle is terrible. His paws in the valley. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The, the quiver rattles against him. The flashing spear and javelin with shaking and raging. He races over the ground and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains in the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the, the, the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he, cliff he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag an inaccessible place. From where he spies out food, he, his eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood where the slain are. There he is. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice I will add nothing more. The Lord's not done. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified or do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? 
I'll pause there. The Lord goes on in the rest of chapter 40 and chapter 41 to describe two creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, as examples of his wisdom and power. What does the Lord want Job to know? Three words. I am God. The Lord is God, and as His creatures, we have no right to question Him. The Lord gave Job no explanation for his suffering. He didn't give him any insight into what was going on in heaven. The Lord didn't tell Job that he proved Satan right. Excuse me, that he proved Satan wrong by worshiping God. The Lord said nothing except to assert his sovereignty over his creation. Now look at Job's final answer in chapter 42. Verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. We don't know how much revelation Job had apart from what he's just heard from God. As we sit here with our Bibles, we can affirm with Job and with God that he is sovereign over all his creation and that he is worthy to be worshipped simply on the basis that he is God. But we can also add to that a, a host of truths that God has revealed himself throughout history and recorded in Scripture. But Job had no written Scripture. He had oral tradition, which almost certainly meant that he knew the history from creation to the flood. In fact, it's likely that Noah's sons were still alive in Job's day. And so even though Job was several generations removed, he, he likely had direct access to the knowledge of God as it was passed from Noah and his sons to their descendants. But whatever Job knew about God, God did not appeal to that. Would it have been helpful if Job knew what had gone on in heaven? Perhaps. Would it have been helpful if Job knew that it was God himself who suggested him to Satan on the basis of his righteousness? Maybe. Would it have helped Job if he knew in, that, in the midst of his suffering that it was God's intention to bless Job even more in his latter years than his former years. Who knows? But it doesn't matter. What, what Job needed to know is that God is God. Think about those situations in your life that are particularly vexing to you. Is it enough for you to know that the Lord is God? 
Could you be content to have none of your questions answered? Can you submit to God's providence in your life simply on the basis that it is His will? Can you be still and know that He is God? Now, we don't have to limit ourselves to that. We can bring all of our knowledge of God as revealed in Scripture to bear on the circumstances of our life, but at the very center of all that we know about God is this truth. He is God. And as God, He has the sovereign right to do whatever He pleases. Job is not the only person to receive this kind of an explanation. In Isaiah 45, verse 9, it says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? A hundred years later, the Lord spoke the words, uh, these words through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah says, I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel and it, as it pleased the potter to make. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. You know that in Romans chapter 9, Paul uses this illustration to respond to those who cry foul at the doctrine of election. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And so Paul responds, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The point of these passages could not be clearer. Just as the potter has absolute and unquestionable right to make what he wants out of that lump of clay, so God has the absolute and unquestionable right to do what He wants with His creation, including you and me. He is God. At the end of the day, whatever else we can say about God's motivations and His purposes and His character that informs our understanding of why He does what He does, this is the bedrock truth. He is God, and He can do whatever He pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that in contrast to idols, our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Not only does God do whatever He pleases, but He does what He pleases so that you might know that He is the Lord. On our trip, Doug Bookman, Doug Bookman said something repeatedly that has been ringing in my ears as I've thought about this series. He said, God is far more interested in revealing Himself to us than we are interested in knowing Him. If you want to do an interesting study, do a search in the Bible for the phrase, Know that I am the Lord. Know that I am the Lord. 
the Lord rescued Israel out of Egypt so that they might know that He is the Lord. The Lord performed powerful signs to the Egyptians, bringing them to their knees so that the Egyptians would know that He is the Lord. The Lord fed Israel manna day by day in the wilderness so that they would know that He is the Lord. The Lord sustained Israel in the wilderness for 40 years such that their sandals didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out, so that they would know that He is the Lord. Rahab told the spies that when the Canaanites heard what the Lord did across the Jordan, she says, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, because the Lord, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. When Elijah contested with the prophets of Baal and the Lord rained down fire on the sacrifice, the people rightly responded, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. In 1 Kings 20, despite King Ahab's wickedness, the Lord delivered Israel from an army of over 100,000 Arameans to demonstrate that He is the Lord. Through the prophet Ezekiel in particular, the Lord proclaims judgment and restoration and salvation throughout the, the book. And over 60 times, it says that the purpose of all of what God is going to do is so that people might know that He is the Lord. One of the promises of the new covenant, which has yet to be fulfilled, is that the day will come when no one will say to his neighbor, Know the Lord. There'll be no more evangelism. Because everyone will know the Lord. Until then, God continues to reveal Himself in His Word to us so that we might know that He is God. The greatest act of self-revelation by God is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His glorious resurrection declares to all the world that the Lord is God and there was no one like Him. I'll close with this. Isaiah 55 says, The Lord says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What makes God's ways and His thoughts different and higher than our ways and our thoughts? It's that He is a compassionate and pardoning God. Where our tendency is to permanently reject those who hate us, God forgives those who turn from their false thoughts and wicked ways. So if you have been worshiping some other God or a false version of the true God, turn from your false thoughts and return to the Lord and submit yourself to the one who is the true and living God. When you think about God, be sure that whatever else comes into your mind, that you know that the Lord is God 
And on that basis alone, he is worthy to be worshipped. Let's pray. Our Lord, if it were not for You, we would not know You. We would not know anything about You. We would be lost like the rest of the world in trying to walk on this earth and try and understand who we are and why we exist and what is the meaning of all things. But out of Your grace and Your love, You have revealed Yourself to us. Lord, both today and in this series, would you cause us to have a true and right knowledge of you so that we would worship you rightly and that you would receive the worship that is due to you. In Christ's name, amen.